Sabrina Merchant as I take you through the most pertinent weekly women's basketball happenings every Tuesday here on the Swish Appeal podcast feed. On today's show, I'll be joined by Stephen Trinkwald, one of the co-hosts of the Double Down WNBA podcast to talk about the bottom of the WNBA playoff bracket. Stephen gave some really great statistical analysis on the teams duking it out for the final postseason seeds. Though we did record this before Dallas's win over New York on Monday, so when I mentioned that the Wings have yet to clinch a playoff berth, that is no longer up to date. Before we get to my conversation with Steven, I wanted to take a moment to reflect on Brittany Griner, who was officially sentenced to nine years in a Russian penal colony for the crime of bringing two vape cartridges containing less than one gram of hashish oil into the country. She was charged with violating Article 229 2C of the Russian Criminal Code, which prohibits smuggling narcotics in a, quote, significant amount. Whether Greiner actually committed the crime or not, and her guilty plea doesn't erase the fact that drugs could have been planted on her, it's clear that Greiner's punishment doesn't fit the alleged crime, even accounting for the fact that Russia has harsher drug laws than the United States. She brought 0.702 grams of hash oil into the country. That doesn't really sound like an amount that is significant or one that is going to be distributed across Russia. She is being wrongfully detained so that Russia can extract a political concession from the United States. And it is terrifying to see someone's life being used in such a way. In this job... I think a lot about the significance of basketball and sports and how much all of this matters in the grand scheme of things. But the reason Brittany is in Russia is because of basketball, and she was probably detained in part because of her celebrity as a basketball star. A sport that has given me and so many of you who listen joy in our lives has been corrupted by the Russian state. And here at home, it's impossible to watch the Phoenix Mercury to derive any joy from that team without being aware of the trauma that they feel playing basketball without their sister, Brittany Griner, as Skylar Diggins-Smith so eloquently put last Thursday. All of the other issues that WNBA players have been bringing up in recent days, the travel, the officiating, the fairness of the playoff format, what does it all even mean in comparison to what PG is enduring? what she and her family will continue to deal with until she is brought home. And long after that, as she processes this horrific, unjustifiable situation. I never really know how to talk about BG and then just get back into basketball. It feels insincere, almost disrespectful. But her name deserves to be amplified. Brittany Griner is part of the WNBA and her absence is felt So before we get back to that WNBA playoff conversation, I want to leave you with the words of the Mercury from the day that Griner was sentenced. 
While we knew it was never the legal process that was going to bring our friend home, today's verdict is a sobering milestone in the 168-day nightmare being endured by our sister, BG. We remain heartbroken for her, as we have every day for nearly six months. We remain grateful to and confident in the public servants working every day to return her to her family and us. We remain faithful. The administration will do what it takes to end her wrongful detention. We are inspired every day by BG's strength, and we are steadfastly committed to keeping her top of mind publicly until she is safely back on American soil. We will not allow her to be forgotten. We are BG. All right. I'm so excited to be joined by Stephen Trinkwald, co-host of the Double Down podcast, along with our very own Eric Demchak from Swish Appeal. Stephen, thank you so much for talking to me about the WNBA playoffs and all the teams that are probably going to lose in the first round. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I've really been enjoying your podcast with Eric, and I'm so excited to talk to you more in depth about these lower level teams that are kind of like the most fascinating thing to me about the WNBA right now, the first thing that we're going to talk about, and if you're a regular listener of this podcast, you know that the Dallas Wings have just been endlessly confusing, interesting, just providing all sorts of questions to me since Vicki Johnson got there, and probably the best team that has yet to con- clinch a playoff spot. Steven, I guess my first question for you about the Wings is, is this team actually better without Enrique? I definitely think that's still up in the air. Obviously, they've had a couple impressive wins lately without Arike, and we're able to close out uh, the less impressive Fever team uh, after losing Arike again, unfortunately, to an injury. But they're definitely different, right? They play with a totally different identity, I think, uh, moving the ball a little bit more. I think that I guess the thing about Arike is, you know, she is a good player who who does things that she does very well, but she just does those things so much, you know, 19 shooting possessions per game that leads the league. She is kind of just average efficiency. And, you know, this team just has a really like a a lot of good offensive players that probably can't do enough of what they do well when so much of your offense revolves around one player who isn't so much the alpha and the omega creator for herself and others. It's really just mostly for herself. Yeah, I look at a team like the Sparks that's kind of devoid of a lot of offensive talent, and I think she'd be so good at soaking up possessions on a team like that. But when you have a Dallas group that really has a lot of shot creation throughout the roster, I'm not sure if they need her to do all of that. And to see them play with like a traditional quote-unquote point guard like Ty Harris, like Veronica Burton a little bit more often, I don't know that it necessarily makes more sense because I'm not here to discount all of the the wonderful things that Enrique does, but there is like more of a logic to it. And I have fewer questions about that version of the wings than I do about the Enrique version of the wings. I do think there's a pretty hard ceiling on an Enrique-less version of the wings, but I think mm-hmm. you could say the same thing about this team with Enrique in the lineup. You know, it's not like she's elevating them to some level of contention. And the thing you have to look at without Arike Gumbawale is, you know, year over year, this team is at the bottom of the league in terms of assist percentage and mm-hmm. atop the league in terms of isolation frequency. And we've really seen both of those figures kind of shift back to normal WNBA team type levels in these last couple of games without Arike. 
I mean, it's interesting that you say that they have a hard ceiling when their two wins were against the aces in the sky, like at full strength without Arike. So if that's the ceiling, I mean, I'm sold. Like that's a pretty good team. But I'm also very interested because I think they're pretty solidly the six seed. Like out of all of the seeding machinations that could possibly happen over the next week, I think Dallas being the six seed is probably the most likely outcome out of any of them. And that means they could get Connecticut. And we've already seen Dallas beat Connecticut. And they have their their newest attraction here, Tara McCowan, who kind of seems like the perfect player you'd want to match up against that Sun team. Yeah. And not only to kind of hold up against their outstanding bigs, but when you think about the things that Tierra McCowan maybe doesn't do well, mm-hmm. you know, defending in the pick and roll, getting out in the perimeter, you know, she's not really going to have to do that all that much against this Connecticut team. She can kind of be the Tierra McCowan that you need her to be and that will play to her strengths against, you know, Brianna Jones and a guard combination that doesn't really do a lot of creation things in terms of, you know, pulling up in the pick and roll from, you know, from behind the line or really putting pressure on the rim. Like they don't really have those guards that are going to kind of, at least you don't think of them really exploiting the typical Tierra McCowan concerns that you would have against like a normal playoff team. Exactly. I mean, her, her numbers just like this past week, the, the 19 points, 14 rebounds are just, they just like pop off the page. And I mean, it's the kind of thing that her biggest backer is always expected when she was drafted in 2019. But as the league has, you know, evolved differently offensively, like there's gotten more space, more perimeter attacking. I don't know. I, I just worry about like how she's going to hold up if it's not Connecticut. Do you think that there is a way to play Tara McCowan against Las Vegas or against Chicago when they do take advantage of the entire half court, not just the paint like Connecticut does? I realize that she did just factor pretty prominently in wins against both of those teams, but when those coaching staffs have the time to game plan against a player like McCown, do you think like that's still a, a feasible center option for the Dallas Wings? And, you know, they beat Vegas, but they were also an extremely wide open yeah. layup attempt at the buzzer away from going into overtime and sure. possibly losing against a, a better team. I mean, this is the beauty about Tier McCowan, right? They are second in the league offensively league wide in their last nine games. You know, that's the kind of point when Tier McCowan entered the starting lineup and, you know, they're second to worst defensively. Like this is kind of what you get from Tier McCowan. You're, you're going to be able to get a lot of baskets on both ends. I, I don't really think other than just, Hoping, you know, Tierra McCowan's strengths in, in offensive rebounding and getting your team in a lot of foul trouble and just being able to kind of do the things she does well. Like, I don't really think there's a, a scheming machination really to avoid kind of what Vegas or Chicago does well to kind of limit her weaknesses. You just, you know, it's kind of a math game in terms of hoping that she's able to pull down more offensive rebounds and, and get the other team's good players in foul trouble more than you're going to hurt her uh, by putting her in pick and roll and kind of attacking from the perimeter. I think I don't, I I don't really love, I don't have a high level of confidence, I guess, really against any team, including Connecticut, but Connecticut, I think is probably the most favorable. Yeah. And I mean, we saw Dallas have a lot of success against Connecticut multiple ways, actually this season. Like there was the super rangy wingy lineup again with Adarike that did a lot of damage when uh, they played them earlier in the season. I think that was like Marina, Alicia Gray, uh, Izzy, Kayla Thornton, and Satu together. And if Satu's healthy, like that obviously just provides a lot more flexibility for what Dallas can do. I do think it's interesting that they've proven that formula can be successful. And then you can also just sort of try to bully Connecticut a little bit 
I mean, there's been matchups for Connecticut where Brianna Jones does get stoned out of the post. I'm thinking of like Chicago specifically where Candace Parker is just too physical for Brianna Jones to work with. And I'm not saying that Tierra McCowan's that kind of defender, not by any means, obviously, but I do think that size is just something interesting that not a lot of teams have in their favor. I do think Tierra McCowan is kind of a great representation of kind of the, the theme of this roster, which is it's lack of players that are really going to be kind of positive contributors on both ends of the floor. I think you have a couple, right? Alicia Gray is definitely Mm -hmm. a good offensive player and a good defensive player. Kayla Thornton can be that depending on how things are going for her offensively in a given game. But then, you know, outside of that, you have a couple plus really, really plus defensive players, uh, some players that can really light it up for you offensively. But I mean, I think this is going to be a theme of all these teams that we're talking about, and that's you know why they're closer to the the bottom of the playoff race than the top, is that there aren't a lot of lineups where you can think, okay, we're really going to be easily able to kind of balance offense and defense with this group. Yeah, that's a really good point. Just uh, we're we're dealing with some some flawed collections of talent here. Just got to cobble together the best possible combinations depending on the matchup. But are there any stats about the wings that just stand out to you in a positive or negative direction as we look ahead to the postseason? Well, I think one thing that's interesting, and this isn't so much the advanced stats that I think you were maybe looking for, but the fact that they have gone 500 against Candace Parker in her Chicago Sky tenure, that's a little interesting. I don't really think you would like them too much if they ended up in in that matchup in the 1-8, but you know, they they lost a couple this year and they were Chicago was obviously a different team last year, but the fact that they've been able to play them tough basically every time that they play and steal a couple wins is at least interesting, but I, I think the thing about this team that makes them, I know you said you were fascinated with them, but a little bit less interesting to me than some of these other teams is, you know, the kind of other teams that we'll be talking about have pretty stark strengths and stark weaknesses. And then this, this team is just kind of average all around outside of like getting to the line really well and getting offensive boards and avoiding turnovers, mostly because they don't pass, uh, as we mentioned, right. Uh, you know, th- there's nothing really that stands out too much statistically. I like that they're able to get out in transition a little bit, you know, they're in the top four there, but this is just kind of like a thoroughly average team <laughs> in every regard. I feel like. Honestly, that's kind of what makes them interesting to me because I just don't know what they are. Every other team sort of has an identity and whether that works out well for them or not, like you, you kind of know what you're going to get from them. Whereas the wings, like they could just play entirely different brands of basketball, depending on the lineup. And I just, I don't know what's coming. So is is there a stylistic preference for you for like, what would really kind of maximize this roster? I like when they try to be as switchable as possible. I think when they play all their like-sized players together and just throw out as many wings as you possibly can onto the court, that that's just like my aesthetic of really switchy defenses and positionless offensive sets. But I also think that some of their more exciting players are kind of marginalized in that respect. Like that's not a system that would favor Enrique or Tierra McGowan. So it's clearly not what Vicky Johnson is on board with. Yeah, I would agree with you. Anytime we can get like three out of the four of like Satu Sabali, Alicia Gray, Kayla Thorne, and Awat Queer, like that, that's what I'm talking about. That's what I want to see. But that's kind of not really the formula that's really been like propelling this recent success for them. So you can't argue with the results, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're absolutely right. And I'm glad you mentioned to walk because she is just like all limbs, but like doing some really interesting things on defense. And I find it so funny that they couldn't have just picked her number one and everyone would have been happy with that as number one traffic. There was a hometown kid in the draft, Sabrina. You have to remember that. 
Yeah, those hometown kids always create some some strange decisions. Anyway, moving on from the wings, the next team that I wanted to talk about is actually eh, kind of in position to draft a hometown kid next year. Who knows? But the Atlanta Dream, who I don't think were really expected to be in the playoff hunt, just based on how their offseason went and how their roster looked on paper, though I admit that I was wrong about the defensive potential that this group has, especially under the leadership of Tanisha Wright. I kind of just had a more holistic question for you. Do you think that the Dream should even want to be in the playoffs this year? I mean, the quick answer is no, I, I don't. I think there's probably a little bit more you know, value to quote unquote playoff experience for these lower seeds than in years past when you know, you're looking at just like a, a one game format on the road. Now you can really get some experience for, you know, how the same team is only focused on you and the adjustments from game to game and, and the counter to that too. Like you actually making only focusing on one opponent and making game to game adjustments and stuff like that. But I think I agree with you that even though I, I don't think you said it on this podcast, but I've definitely heard you say it before that, you know, this team probably shouldn't prioritize making the playoffs. Like they are still a little bit a ways away. You know, I think it's still an open question to, kind of look at how many players on this version of the dream will be on the team. The next time this is like a real like positive team that like hosts a playoff series has like a positive net rating. I, I don't think, you know, you can say for sure that the list is very long. Yeah, that's a good point. And if they were ending the season on a higher note, playing really well, heading into the playoffs, I'm, I might agree that like, it's nice to have those reps as you build, you know, going forward, but just thinking of all of the injuries that they have, I just don't know that they're going to be super competitive. And how much do you really learn from the postseason if you're fielding like a seven player rotation and have a couple hardships coming in just because you have to field a roster? That to me is sort of where I come down on the dream. It's, I mean, obviously, like as you mentioned, I'm very pro get the lottery pick, try to add more talents to what I think is a really great core of Ari and Ryan Howard and Nas Hillman. But I just don't think that they're in position right now with the Hayes injury, with Billings and Coffee out, with AD Durr out to just be as competitive as they'd want to. And that to me is like just another indicator of why, you know, maybe, maybe just lose a couple of games. Like it's not, not the worst thing that can happen. Yeah. The Tiffany Hayes injury is unfortunate because we had such a glimpse of kind of what, what that could look like Hayes and Howard playing together specifically, you know, one kind of real downhill pressure at the rim type guard and then the perimeter player who's a little bit more perimeter oriented can just hit any type of three-point shot just amazing jump shot versatility but also probably beyond even our wildest expectations defensively as a rookie they were getting pretty good you know they were losing some games still but the offense was kind of creeping back up there with Hayes back after you know being towards the bottom of the league Mm -hmm. for the whole year I mean they were they were 12th in offense for most of the year until Indiana finally caught up to them. But, you know, in those, in that month that Tiffany, Tiffany Hayes was back, they crawled all the way up to, you know, a, a 98 offensive rating, which uh, isn't too great, but it's, it's better than they are a full three points better per 100 possessions than normal. So, you know, having her there to just give them a player that can like beat their, their opponent off the dribble, put some pressure on the rim. Like I said, I mean, evidenced by her, eight and ones in 10 games, which was just, I think, you know, four or five of them maybe came against the aces yeah, uh, in that incredible upset, but you know, they just kind of needed that. And without that, I, I don't really think it's going to be kind of an interesting first round series as you're outlining. I actually wanted to ask you about 
what you think their best five is, but the more we talk about this, I'm not super interested in what that five is, to be perfectly honest. I think a more interesting question would be just, you said that the list of players on the dream who are going to be on like the next great Atlanta team is pretty short. Other than Ari, Nas, and Ryan, is anybody on that list for you? I mean, for me, I would still want to have Nia Coffey kind of in the long-term plans. You know, it was a pretty rough shooting season, but I think, you know, the combination of Howard and Coffey, if Coffey's shooting can just come back to earth from where it was the last few years, get back to kind of mid-30s, Mm-hmm. Howard and Coffee can just do some really interesting things defensively where maybe you you don't need to play with the traditional center. You can have things a little bit more spaced out for Ryan Howard, who I think has kind of shown the same struggles getting to the rim as she showed in college. But in terms of like, you know, just kind of three, four years from now, I mean, I'm not even sure the list is as long as you outlined. You know, I think Hillman has been interesting, but I don't think you're 100% sure what her role on a good team is going to be. Ari, I think, you know, you feel pretty good that she can be like a year over year six player candidate of the year. But mm-hmm. I mean, do you feel super good about her being like your starting point guard in a couple of years? I, I feel like that's still a, an open question. She just had such dramatic improvement this year from last year that I'm unwilling to put a ceiling on her. And the way that she was able to carry an Arizona team that had very limited talent beyond her just makes me think that you can put a lot on her plate. Not that you would want to necessarily, but I've just seen her get so much better that I I believe there's more growth to come offensively for her. Okay, that's fair. I mean, I, I think you can definitely see that path because she has been so much better than she was allowed to be in, in very limited opportunities last year where they were you know, basically playing a one-year rental in Odyssey Sims over Ari McDonald for right. no discernible reason. But <laughs> yeah, she's she's been awesome. She's been, I think, you know, if we were going to talk about their best five, she would be in that. She's been one of their five best players this year, I think, no doubt. Yeah, but I think you're right about Nas. I'm just not sure how she fits into a really good team, but there's enough skills that she has that make me interested in keeping her around for the long term. Not, not to say that they're not going to keep her around from all of the things that Padover and Tanisha Wright have to say about Nas. They're definitely very invested in her. I mean, she's been way better than I thought she was going to be defensively. I mean, you you can never, I feel like, from college basketball, really be able to translate how a a defensive players perimeter skills are going to be if they play, you know, mm-hmm. a traditional big position because of, you know, the three second rule and everything like that. And so many more kind of paint bound centers in college basketball and, and so much less shooting, but she's been able to hang with basically any of her assignments. It's really, are you going to be able to play her as a four or a five? Like what is her position? And then what does the offensive role look like at that position? If she can play the five long-term, then you don't worry as much about the shooting, but if she's going to play alongside a Cheyenne Parker, then you know, it is a little bit more, uh, I guess, of a question in terms of can that kind of awkward jump shot really be able to give you enough spacing offensively? Yeah, I was just impressed that she actually took a corner three in a game that I watched recently, which is something that never even entered her thought process at Michigan and even earlier in the season. So yeah, there's a there's some Nas Hellman belief here. I think just the vibes in Atlanta are so good that I want good things to happen for everybody on the dream I'm probably irrationally high on some of their players. Like, don't even get me started on Christy Wallace. Th- those expectations might need to be tempered. Do you want to talk about Christy Wallace? We can talk about <laughs> We don't need to talk about Christy Wallace. Okay. <laughs> Just like uh, the savior of my fantasy team at the start of the season, which made me want to watch her a lot. I made some comments about how the Atlanta Dream really needed to get some shooting to start the season. And a very loud contingent of Baylor fans explained to me that Christy Wallace was all they needed. And I'm not sure that they were exactly right, but she's definitely way better than I remember her being in college. 
as a player who was, I mean, I was not familiar with Christy Wallace prior to the season. So she made the team that was kind of like surprise number one for me. Cause I wasn't too familiar with her. And then to actually watch her play just says like a, a nice connective piece. Like she's mm-hmm. not going to change the fortunes of your team by any means, but she's just going to do a little bit of everything pretty well, you know, for a team that just needed depth at, at the wing with everybody out. And, you know, they hadn't traded for AD yet. Tip was still nursing her first injury from coming back from overseas you know, she was uh, a revelation and I, I think she could, you know, she is already 26, I think, but she could be, you know, a bench wing for this team for the next few years. I think you, you'd be, you'd feel fine about that. Hey, we added to the list of players who are going to be on the next great dream team. <laughs> Same question we had for Dallas. Any strong statistical indicators stand out to you about the dream, either positively or negatively? I mean, I would just say positively and negatively, you know, they started out being kind of like this all world defense, you know, leading the league in defense for a while Mm -hmm. um, and being, you know, playing offense as if they were being guarded by the dream. And they have kind of come back to earth in both directions, but the, I feel like the defense is kind of slipping more than the offense can catch up. And I think that's especially true with, with Hayes missing some more time from May to June, they, their defensive rating jumped up about 10 points per 100 possession, and it's been climbing a couple points in that direction ever since. So they they do feel like, as you were kind of alluding to before, that they're just losing a little bit of that momentum, largely due to injuries, like you were saying, that has kind of made them, you know, that made them special early in the year. Yeah, it really is too bad because they're just a fun team to watch. And like I said, just the environment in Atlanta seems really great. I'm always torn on whether WNBA teams should limit themselves to smaller arenas to pack them or if they should try to sell out really big houses like Phoenix and Seattle do. But the the crowds that they get, like in Washington and Atlanta, when they play at these NBA G League arenas, just seem really wonderful. And I think it was a great idea to find a permanent home for the dream, even if it is a smaller building. That environment, that like just feeling that they've created at these games, I think is going to bode really well for them going forward, even though I don't think they should have any playoff games. I remain fixed by that. Okay, so next up among the teams that I wanted to talk about is the Phoenix Mercury. And honestly, when I originally asked you to talk about these bottom teams, I assumed Phoenix would have a pretty great chance of making the playoffs. And then we got the news today that Diana Tarazi has been ruled out for the remainder of the regular season, and she's being replaced by Vonnie Turner. Was it the regular season? I thought all I saw was the remainder of the season. So I saw a report from Alexa Philippou of ESPN who said that they've only confirmed the rest of the regular season. Should they make the playoffs, they'll reevaluate. Okay. So at least it's not, it's still up in the air whether she'll return from the playoffs. Right. I hadn't seen that. Thank you. Yeah. Not that Diana's been having the greatest season, but her good games are very good games. Honestly, I don't know how Phoenix is doing it. This is where we're going to start, Stephen. How is Phoenix doing this? Their roster makes no sense to me. I'm not convinced that Jenny Sims and Sam Thomas are actual WNBA players. How how is this happening? I think a little bit is just like novelty, right? Like teams Mm -hmm. do not see this very often. Uh, And this is kind of one of the reasons that I do think this is one of the more interesting teams out there. And and I get why people don't like them. They're a very easy team to root against. They have maybe the two single most disliked players in the league by fans, albeit for, for wildly different reasons. And I, I also get like kind of the, the comedy element of like rooting for this team to fail and shipping a lottery pick to maybe the best team in the WNBA. But like this team is interesting to me because they are, they're so different than every other WNBA team. Like not only do they only play with one big, but they play with a big that as brilliant as she is, 
is like basically the lowest usage full-time starter in league history in a league that, as you had alluded to before, is like so dominated by star bigs and your offense being driven by your star bigs. So for them to really be almost strictly perimeter-based in their offense um, and obviously the zone that they're playing basically full-time, it's really interesting. And, And I think it's kind of throwing teams off like WNBA teams will throw zones at, you know, Connecticut and maybe some other teams that you just kind of look at their personnel and think it's kind of well-suited to to zone up against. But it's not something that teams really see all that often. And I think that's the novelty of, of getting out of your offensive rhythm so you can attack Sophie Cunningham in the post with a player that's not really an elite post up for that type of stuff, I think really does matter. Yeah, I think that's a really good point about Sophie. Uh, it's something that I noticed in the NBA, I would say like about a decade ago when teams started going small was the instinct was to, oh, hey, there are really drastic size mismatches that we can attack. Like I remember Mark Cuban saying this, like, do you really want to take the ball out of Kobe Bryant's hands that you can have Meta World Peace post up JJ Barea? And I realize that's like an obtuse reference for a lot of WNBA fans, but that's always what I think about when I think about small ball mismatches. And yeah, you can attack Sophie as much as possible, but Vanessa Nygaard says this all the time. Like she's going to come back and hit a three in your face and three is worth more than two. And that's sort of how Phoenix is handling themselves. You actually alluded to both of the things that I wanted to ask you subsequently, but let's, let's start with this one. Do you think Phoenix is a villain or, or should we be rooting for this team given all that they've had to endure this year? Yeah. I mean, I think they're, they're interesting. And I, again, I, I get why you would maybe not root for a team that has Diana Taurasi and, and Sophie Cunningham as prominent players. Mm-hmm. But when you, I don't know, when you just do something that no other team is doing and you're able to kind of completely change the identity of your basketball team when a player, when you go through a, a, a contract divorce, as they call it in the WNBA, with you know, one of your star acquisitions of the off season and everything else that this team has been through, you know, with the obviously very unfortunate Brittany Griner situation. I don't know. There's just something endearing about this team and, and Skylar Diggins Smith having this awesome season and, you know, not really being surrounded by a ton else that can really do something with the ball in their hands. Yeah. I, I just find this team, you know, more sort of not easy to root for, but just interesting kind of, you know, from just watching them play because they're doing things that no other team is doing. I think I fall on your side. I definitely like just the aesthetic of the way they play offense. Although, I mean, I I would rather not have to see any more zone defenses, even though I understand that there is a place for them from time to time, just Phoenix plays so much of it. And then it's really easy to root for Skylar Diggins Smith, who has just put in a remarkable season and I think is is pretty universally regarded as a villain just based on the player votes that she got for WNBA All-Star. So maybe that question has already been answered for me. The antics, I think, make it very hard to want to root for Phoenix, and that includes Skylar's antics. But I'm with you, just the way that they've had to sort of reinvent themselves, even though it is very similar to the way they played in 2020 in the bubble when Brittany Griner had to leave early. It's not like just a a radical rethinking of how they have to play because a lot of the personnel remain from that group, but it is also dramatically different from the way the rest of the league is trending. And I think it's nice to have that stylistic diversity. Even if I look at the the box scores and pre-turners getting like two field goal attempts and I just can't possibly understand how a player who rolls to the basket on every possession is never getting the ball. You think at some point the lob threats are going to come. She's a unique player in this league and how she's able to kind of finish in the air 
you know, they have at least one good guard that can really kind of set those plays up. And Skylar Diggins-Smith, I think she's a very good passing point guard, but they some somehow managed to find ways to not exploit that one kind of, uh, I guess, advantage that they have uh, over other, other teams and Bree Turner's athleticism. But I also think that Bree Turner is probably fine with having one shooting possession per game. Yeah, she does seem a little uncomfortable with the ball in her hands. And it's kind of nice to have a player who is comfortable with that level of usage when you have so many other ball dominant players. I mean, we haven't even mentioned Diamond to Shields, who has, I think, finally figured out how she fits into this offense. And maybe it is buoyed by the fact that these have come in games without Tarazi, so she gets the ball in her hands more often. This is exactly the kind of spacing that I always thought Di- Diamond to Shields would thrive under. And it's weird that it didn't quite happen in Chicago, but. I'm very happy to see her figuring out a way to use her athleticism and her speed. That, that to me is another just aesthetically pleasing part of watching Phoenix play is just watching Diamond go to work. Especially when she's able to get out in transition. I mean, she is still just breathtaking in transition. Anytime she's able to like attack a closeout or something, you, you get a glimpse of it. But in the open court is really, you know, obviously we're talking about Diamond to Shields here, but she she's just been one of those players that you just, you, you understand kind of why expectations maybe kind of got out of hand a few years ago when she made like, you know, the all league team and people were talking about MVP potential, but to finally kind of find her niche as a very high usage player, whether it's off the bench or in kind of non DT starting lineups, uh, it seems like she's found a little bit more of a home, I would say. Yeah. And obviously like got to mention that she's coming off a, a rather debilitating injury that robbed her of ability to walk you know, as she was recovering. So maybe this is just the natural course of time returning Diamond to her previously otherworldly levels of athleticism. But either way, like, I wish it didn't have to happen in a Tarasilis ecosystem, but it's nice to just see her dominate again. I mean, maybe I'm just kind of taking too much of the small sample size of Twitter, but did you not see a bunch of like, they're going to be better without Diana Tarasi takes when when it was first announced that she was going to miss the regular season. I mean, I get that she has been not a very consistent player, but when she's on, she is a much needed kind of second scoring element on this team, I think. Yeah, I I completely agree with you there. I mean, Phoenix wins the games when Diana Taurasi plays well. They do not compete when Diana Taurasi does not play well. There's just not enough offense to go around if, you know, she's not scoring at like peak Diana levels. So I'm a little curious. Do you want the numbers on those? Yeah, yeah, please. Uh, yeah, 22 points per game on 64% true shooting in wins, 13 points per game on 48% true shooting in losses. So it's pretty stark. I think it's fair to say that she's the barometer of just how the offense is going to perform because like Skylar is super consistent, going to put in her numbers. I mean, Sophie has just been shooting the lights out since the All-Star break, or I guess really since the switch uh, to get her at the starting four after Tina Charles went to Seattle. So that's the thing that changes, right? It's like, is it a DT game? Is it not a DT game? And you can tell pretty much right away. I mean, I guess Diamond can fill in for some of that, but was there a more exciting option than Bonnie Turner? Like, is she just there because they know her? You got to think that, right? Because I don't know. I've since 2018, you know, Yvonne Turner's gotten quite a few looks in the WNBA and it hasn't really been as uh, effective, I would say, as kind of that, that 2018 go around when she was sort of there backup point guard slash second wing, I, I guess, um, when they kind of played a little bit smaller with Bonner at the four. But 
I don't know, you, you kind of think about some other available options and I know, you know, Odyssey Sims just got picked up and that was a player that I thought was maybe going to be a good fit for them in the preseason uh, and ended up signing with Minnesota, but I don't really love that as kind of a replacement option. I mean, I just have to believe that whoever they picked up was not going to get played because Vanessa Nagard plays a super truncated rotation, maybe out of necessity, honestly, now that I think about the players who are on that team. Were there any other uh, stats that you want to share about Phoenix before we move on to another team? No, it's okay. We can hit the next team. Yeah, I think the Diana one is pretty uh, pretty indicative of how this team runs, and which is why I'm not super excited about them for the last week of the year. But a team that I am exceedingly excited about to see for the last few games or so, and hopefully the playoffs, is the New York Liberty, who also have what I would say is a high variance in terms of their outcomes. They can do things like beat the Chicago Sky at full strength and then lay an egg against a Skylar Diggins, Diana Tarazi list, Phoenix Mercury team. My first question. Was that the you, worst loss of the year? My first question to you, was that no, just no. the worst loss of any team in, in the WNBA this that's, season? That's a great question. I ended the day Saturday by thinking it was the most inexplicable results I had seen in the WNBA all year. And then the Sparks beat the Mystics in Washington. <laughs> and we had another contender. But just based on the fact that like both Sky and Diana were out, I think it's inexcusable. In the middle of a playoff run or a playoff race, I should say, you just can't give away games like that. You can't. No, and it's just a classic. If you believe in trap games, I guess that's just a classic trap game of, Mm -hmm. oh, this team is missing their best player on extremely short notice. We can kind of breathe a sigh of relief and then they just completely bring it to you. They had no answers for Diamond to Shields, uh, athletically, I thought. And, you know, maybe there were some adjustments that could have been made to put perhaps more athletic laterally quick players on diamond to shields, Mm -hmm. Um, but they, they weren't able to overcome it. And maybe part of that was just Natasha Howard getting hurt and, you know, the three's not falling because that is basically the barometer of whether this team is going to be good or bad. Right. And when I think of New York, I actually think they have enough laterally gifted athletic players. Like Benajah Laney came back. TD Richards is there. McKellen Onionware is not like diamond to shields level of athleticism, but she can defend in a pinch. I mean, Becca Allen's not a bad defender. Just yeah, classic trap game. I I don't I didn't intend for this to be a, a referendum on how the Phoenix Mercury X Factor continues to deliver them improbable wins. But here we are. Uh, you you did mention that the Liberty just when they make threes, good things seem to happen, and the opposite is true when they don't make shots. Like, do you have any numbers on how they look when the three balls going in? Of course I do. <laughs> um, Specifically with Sabrina Unescu, I mean, every team basically, you know, you're going to look at and they will shoot better from three in wins than in losses. And it'll range anywhere between, you know, 5% to 10% from three point line. But uh, this team in wins, I mean, she's just Sabrina is kind of like a total barometer for them. She's shooting 43% from three in wins and 27 and a half percent from three in losses. So that's kind of when she's hitting the pull-up jump shot, you know, off the pick as, as uh, uh, Brittany Sykes saw her hit quite a few times in that three quarter 30 point game, I guess, just over or just under a week ago, mm-hmm. when those are falling, it's, they're a really hard team to beat. Um, but then she'll have, you know, one for eight, oh, for eight games as well. Is there anything else that really, I don't know, you have noticed as a barometer of what happens when New York does well, or is it just the shooting? Um, I think I didn't look the numbers up on this, but, you know, just like statistically when Stephanie Dolson is able to stay on the floor, uh, she's obviously a very foul prone player, you know, mm-hmm. five fouls per 36 minutes when they're able to get enough out of her. And I'd, I'd love to look at her 
usage in wins and losses too, because, you know, early in the season, she was just such kind of a record scratch player, like getting kind of into the flow of the offense. But when she started to become a little bit more aggressive and take the open threes rather than, you know, that one extra unnecessary pass, turning down a great shot to get maybe a not so good shot from somebody else. That to me felt like a real barometer. And then the other one is just, is Natasha Howard going to finish around the rim? She in wins, she shoots 66% in the paint and in losses, she shoots 48% in the paint. And I, I just don't think other teams really kind of get that type of inconsistency finishing at the rim around their star bigs. Yeah, that's a really good point. I had not realized that Natasha Howard was experiencing that level of variance in her rim finishing, but I was just gonna say numbers that I don't have, but anecdotally, like it seems that Natasha Howard is exceedingly effective when she doesn't have to put the ball on the floor. And then when, you know, there are Natasha Howard dribbling games, you know, that's when we get kind of some of those seven turnover games. (laughs) Natasha Howard dribbling games. Yeah. It's, it's not what you want to see. It's really not. I understand that she wanted an expanded role when she got to New York that she was not getting in Seattle, but dribbling should really not be part of the package. Um, we just saw the return of Benajelani this week on that game against Phoenix that I, I keep coming back to. I apologize. How do you think she fits into what they have going on right now? Cindy Brandello, um, had mentioned to Miles Eric, um, before this game tonight, Monday, as we're recording that she was going to play a little bit of four with Natasha Howard out. And I think that's where she fits into this team as, um, a four, because, you know, they, as you mentioned before, they have like a decent amount of, of wing depth. And I feel like, you know, you just kind of go through team by team, you know, their front court is, you know, probably bottom half or maybe even bottom four in the league, just in terms of like the talent that they have in the front court compared to other teams, whereas they have wings who are, you know, imperfect players, but can definitely play a pretty good role on, on a successful team. But in terms of just like what the what, what the offense is going to look like. She, she at least is going to give them another player who can be a three level scorer, which they desperately need. Um, She's going to give you a little bit more passing. I think you probably don't want the ball in her hands quite as much as last season. Would, would you agree with that? Yeah, I think that's true. I just, Sabrina definitely wasn't as healthy last year as she is now and was not occupying nearly as much defensive attention last year as she is now. So I think it just makes more sense when you, especially when you have danger field available too. like, and Johannes, they have so many other ball handlers that I would rather use Laney as a finisher than a creator. I mean, the turnovers just got out of control for her in 2021. Yeah. She led the league in total turnovers last year. And as the year went on, you know, she started hitting her, she started the season hitting her threes really well. Uh, and maybe this was just a product of, you know, kind of playing on a hobbled knee, but those threes turned more and more into like 17 to 20 foot pull-up shots. And that's just going to be a worse shot, no matter who you are than taking a, a catch and shoot three. So hopefully with a little bit more balanced offense around Benajelani and, you know, not to make the Benajelani segment about Sabrina Unescu, but Sabrina is just a completely different player than she was last year. So hopefully that kind of helps, you know, balance out players roles. But if we can maybe take what you were going to ask about Atlanta and, and kind of apply it to New York. What do you think this team's five best player, like best five player lineup is? That's a really good question. I, I, at some point in the season, I would have said that it includes Johannes, but she's, she's kind of hot and cold recently. I wonder if that's a function of coming off the bench or just 
she was just absolutely otherworldly when she got here. And- I think she's Sandy Brondello is just a terrible fit for Marine Johannes. Like she is just a player that is wants to play freely, play in the open court, and mm-hmm. that that just doesn't seem to be like kind of what Sandy Brondello kind of wants her players to be. It's it's very sort of scripted. It's very methodical, and mm-hmm. it, it just kind of seems like a square peg in a round hole a little bit. Yeah, that's fair, and that's why. I would probably include Dangerfield in whatever five that is. Just her ability to serve as a little pressure release for Sabrina seems to be very helpful. This is a great question. I if I can put, just say something about yeah. Dangerfield, I mean, it's just so hard to be an effective offense and score the ball consistently when your point guard is at 46% true shooting, you know, basically the bottom quarter of the league. So she's done some like just, um, you, you can't really kind of, downplay how important she was when she first got to New York in terms of just like bringing real point guard play, you know, bringing the ball up the court and not, you know, a a player that was actually just like quick enough to get by the player guarding her. I feel like she was the only player on the team that was able to do that at the time, you know, but she's still five, five and shooting 43% from two. And I think as much as we all love Dangerfield and Minnesota was perhaps ill-advised to let her go, you know, the limitations I think are, are starting to show up a little bit more as time goes on. Yeah, that's fair. I think some of the stats are just still boosted by the early returns of when it was just, oh my God, another player who can dribble has entered the New York lineup. So even though it, it looks better for New York, just statistically, like they're on offs are still positive with Sabrina and Crystal on the court. Whereas you remove either of them and it just goes dramatically negative. You're, you're probably right that I think Sabrina plus a few wings and Natasha Howard is probably the way to go. Becca Allen's shooting always waxes and wanes, so I never know what to make of that, but I, I just like her defense so much that I think she should be in that. Probably Sammy Whitcomb. And who's the last one? I guess I guess Laney. I like that. I wish this team kind of reverted back to their 2021 identity a little bit more and kind of let Howard play as the lone big on the floor a little bit more, but they... They just don't seem to trust Howard and trust the team rebounding all that much this year, right? you know, with the coaching change maybe, or just the personnel, you know, maybe Laney being in there and and not Onion Wede kind of changes that, but they just seem to really kind of stray away from those lineups as much as I can. Yeah. And it's, it's too bad because again, I just, I love the conceit of, you know, one big, a bunch of wings and a point guard which is, is kind of what Phoenix is doing, right? Incidentally. And I mean, Laney is no worse defensively than, uh, especially guarding fours, I think specifically than Sophie Cunningham. I mean, she's she's very strong in her base. Like she can hold up, maybe not against, you know, John Quell Jones or, or Asia, mm-hmm. Asia Wilson, but just about anybody else. Yeah, I completely agree. And that's kind of the beauty of their roster is that you have the ability to mix and match depending on the matchup, but I do think that they could probably lean into that system a little bit more, but but you're right. Walt Hopkins was much more interested in that level of pace than Sandy Brondello is, and they could probably lean into that frenetic version of themselves a little bit more often. I just really enjoy talking about Sabrina Nescu for the obvious reasons, so I'm hoping to have more opportunities to talk about them. I have more. You want to keep going? going? We can keep yeah, going. Yeah, let's go. Okay. I mean, I just think, you know, the the difference to me in Sabrina Nescu this year is that it, it actually looks like you have kind of one of those guards where you can actually drive efficient offense through your guard rather than kind of needing an elite big to be sort of the focal point. She can mm-hmm. finally actually get, you know, paint penetration pretty reliably. 
you know, last year, I think she was more of like a situationally good player, kind of depending on like the type of defense or the quality defender you're going to throw at her. Like, you know, hedging and trapping defenses just made her life miserable last year. Whereas, you know, this year, she's not really kind of shying away from that as much. We, we just saw, I mentioned it before, but we just saw her put up 30 against Brittany Sykes, basically mainly Brittany Sykes on, uh, you know, who just couldn't contain her off the ball. And so much so that they eventually kind of switched Jordan Canada onto her. Uh, she bounced back with a strong 27 against the sky after they made her life completely miserable in the second game of the season. So she is still fa- fairly dependent on the three point shot falling, but you can still see the maturation of actually getting into the paint and finishing around the basket. And, you know, it's still not necessarily beating you with quickness. It's a little bit more kind of shiftiness, but you know, we're talking about a player with 17 and ones this season. That's you know, basically the second most of any non-big in the league. It's it's Asia Wilson, it's Liz Cambage, it's Kelsey Plum, and then it's Sabrina Ionescu and Skylar Diggins-Smith tied. So, you know, her, she's she's not shying away from that physicality and maybe the way she was last year when she was probably still dealing with her ankle injury a, a little bit more than, you know, people like to admit, frankly. Yeah, she's been pretty open about the fact that she just did not feel healthy at all and was unable to trust her ankle last year. But obviously after missing the almost the entirety of her rookie season, I can understand why she felt so motivated to come back last year. Yeah, and similar to kind of what we were talking about with DT and Skylar Diggins-Smith, like last year, like Benajelini was just going to do Benajelini things. Like she was pretty much going to be consistent across the board every single game. And they were a competent team when Sabrina was good and a miserable one when she wasn't frankly. So to see her be able to carry that for larger portions of the season this year, I've, I've been really, really impressed with what she's been able to do this year. Yeah. Just the, the way she rates out on like warp and all of these advanced stats. I mean, it's, it's remarkable. She's right up there with the, the Asia's and Stewie's of the world, which is a very impressive set of company to be in. Well, I mean, you know, on off numbers are, are very noisy as mm-hmm. we would all admit, but you know, her offense on off number differential is basically the, the biggest in the league. They are almost a one Oh two offensive rating when she's on the court and under an 80 when she's off the court. So it, you know, one Oh one point seven is not amazing offense, but it's perfectly average offense. And they, they just cannot like manufacture anything when she's not out there as, as you kind of mentioned with in the danger field segment. Yeah, it's it's not pretty when Sabrina has to sit with foul trouble, and thankfully that just doesn't happen very often. Although there was a a brief sequence at that second Sparks Liberty game where she had to sit in the first quarter, and the Liberty proceeded to score eight points in that first quarter, a game that they did end up winning when you know Sabrina didn't have to sit for the majority of the rest of the game. Sabrina, do you do you mean when Neko Gumake had two fouls and continued playing, and Sabrina Unescu <laughs> had two fouls and wasn't allowed to continue playing, even though she's never fouled out of a game? Uh, that is exactly what I'm referring to. <laughs> okay, just making sure. <laughs> there were literally no backup bigs for Neko Gumake. I understand where Fred Willis is coming from. Hey, Jasmine Walker got some burn in that game, Sabrina. <laughs> I had intended for this not to be another Sabrina Reels on the Sparks podcast, but it always ends up turning that way. Okay, for those of you who are counting, there are obviously two more teams that are nominally in this playoff race that we did not discuss. But since I got to talk about the links with Jack Borman last week and the Sparks with Edwin Garcia the week before, I didn't really think it was necessary to talk about either of them, especially because I'm not exactly projecting either of those teams to make the playoffs, the Sparks, because their schedule is 
abominable going forward and same with the Lynx. But Steven, if you had to pick three of these teams to make the playoffs out of the four, or I guess out of the six, if you want to include Minnesota or LA, who do you think is going to be actually sitting in the postseason when this is all said and done? So I will preface this by saying that I think Dallas and Minnesota are like the two closest things to, you know, good to average teams when they have their players available. Mm -hmm. Um, But Minnesota, you know, they have Seattle and Connecticut coming up. I I just, I don't really know if that's going to be able to to be possible. You know, maybe Connecticut is just locked into the three and and they rest some folks and they're able to just kind of get a schedule when they're, but based on everything that's kind of laid out in front of us, I would say Dallas is an obvious one. You know, the one thing that we didn't talk about is that, you know, New York has basically had 24 minutes of clean injury reports this year. Uh, Natasha Howard went out in that Phoenix game with what looked like, I mean, it didn't look in real time like the worst ankle injury, but she wasn't able to put any pressure on it. So I don't think this team's going to be able to do anything without her, frankly, uh, as they're about to tip off and they're probably going to make me eat my words. But so I would they say- They are playing in a Rike-less Dallas team. Oh, is that good or bad? Um, <laughs> uh, so I would say Dallas. I would say Atlanta probably holds on because they might get two Liberty games back-to-back, Sands, Natasha Howard. And I would say Phoenix is able to- you know, clean up a, a little bit, take care of Minnesota and Dallas. I, I feel terrible about all these other than Dallas. I have no idea. Yeah. The Phoenix one is so interesting to me because they end the season against Chicago. And as you mentioned earlier, Chicago has the opportunity to potentially turn that into a lottery pick by beating the Mercury. And that's going to be one of just the more fun regular season games. I can remember knock on wood. If you and, know, the sky actually try and don't just sit their players for the postseason. I mean, Vegas is crawling right up there, you know, right behind them for home court advantage. But the other thing, you know, Chicago is kind of like the worst good team against zone defense. So maybe that'll be a little bit of a one, eight playoff preview. Yeah, that's a good point. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Steven. Anything else that you wanted to say before we get out or. I can plug my podcast. That's okay. Uh, Yeah. Let's please listen to the double down WNBA podcast. I host uh, it with Swish Appeal's own Eric Nemchak, as Sabrina had said at the top of the segment here. Um, we were weekly for a while, but I've kind of dialed it back to two weeks. We'll see how that goes come playoff time. But our most recent episode was uh, one of my favorite exercises of the year where we kind of outlined the, outlined the cases for and against each of the, the real contenders in my eyes, the top five teams um, that were too good for us to talk about today, Sabrina. So that was a really fun exercise. We went a little long, but uh, check it out if, if you know you have room in your schedule for a second WNBA podcast. Yeah, and I would especially recommend the episode that you guys did on the top 10 players in the league because, I mean, that's just like timeless. You don't really have to be at any point in the season to listen to that one. And it's just a really interesting look at types of positions that dominate the WNBA. And I mean, I hadn't really thought about six to 10 on that list very thoroughly. So it was helpful to you know hear your thoughts on that as well. Well, thank you for listening. Yeah, thank you so much for being on the show and for talking about all the teams that were uh, not good enough for you to mention on last week's episode of your podcast. Make sure you guys are all subscribed to the Swish Appeal podcast feed where we have Whip Around and Triple Threat every week. I'll be back next week. 